we instinctively will tend to center the concerns of our white brothers and sisters, their sensibilities or sensitivities. That's not always wrong because we're called to love all our people, all the people that God by his providence bring into our pews and into our communities. We need to love everyone. And I'm committed to that. I absolutely am. But how do you do it in a way where that's not always your first concern or their needs aren't your only consideration? When I think about church planting in the city, quote unquote, I don't actually think about the entire city. I focus specifically on neighborhoods. Cities and neighborhoods really are two different ecologies. A neighborhood ecology, the mix of its families, businesses, institutions, resources, can look quite different from the ecology of the entire city. Sometimes new churches don't root well in the ecology of their neighborhoods because they're nurtured for the ecology of the entire city. Take Washington, D.C., for example. When most people think of Washington, D.C., they think of the nation's capital. They think of the seat of power. They think of the buildings and monuments downtown. But in the shadow of those buildings, I mean, quite literally sometimes, in the shadow of those buildings are neighborhoods that don't have power, that are not the seat of government, that are not associated with the country's wealth and the country's power. Well, those neighborhoods are part of the city, but they're not like the city. And here's the thing, we can't reach our cities unless we first reach the various neighborhoods that make up the city. And we can't reach our neighborhoods unless we understand the neighborhood ecosystem. And that's kind of what I'm talking about in this very first episode of our podcast with the Reverend Duke Kwan, who's a pastor, senior minister of Grace Meridian Hill in Washington, D.C. We talk about his neighborhood, we talk about its history, its diversity, how it's different from the wider city of Washington, D.C., and how he tries to minister in the midst of that diversity. Duke, brother, thank you for joining us, man, and having this conversation. Hey, man, it's great to be here. Amen. So we're trying to have these conversations in a way that give people a sense of the gospel ecology in a local city and neighborhood. What's the sort of state of the growth of the gospel in a particular place? What what are the sort of nutrients that are Hmm. feeding that gospel and causing it to grow? What are the kinds of things in the environment that might be hampering the growth of the gospel, the spread of the church, the advance of Christ's glory? And this season, we're in Washington, D.C., and we're trying to give folks a sense of the gospel work that's happening here in the city. And I couldn't be more excited than to talk with you, brother, about your work at Grace Meridian Hill and your neck of the woods. So maybe the way to get started is just ask the question, what's the difference between your neighborhood and Washington, D.C.? When people think of D.C., the city, how is that like and how is that dislike your particular neighborhood? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, most people, when you hear Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. uh, they think about the nation's capital, uh, which it is, of course, um, but only think about the the memorials and the monuments and things downtown and the hustle and bustle and things you hear about in the headlines of the news Uh, We are about three miles north of the White House, so we are in the northwest quadrant of D.C. Um, So in a historic neighborhood, 
Um, there are plenty of days, weeks, months that you can go on doing life, even forgetting that mm-hmm. you're in the federal capital of the United States. Now, now explain that for folks. I don't yeah. think most people get that. If, yeah. they, if they're really only thinking about the monuments in the White House, you know, how is it possible to live just three miles from the White House and yet be a world away? Well, I think it's just people have, uh, well, first of all, geographically, you're far enough away where you can not even see sort of the the, the signs and symbols mm-hmm. of the Capitol um, or the Capitol literally itself. Um, and you just go about your day, whether if it's taking your kids to school or if it's hitting the grocery store or if it's going to church, uh, depending on where you work, even going back and forth to work, you can kind of live apart from the hustle and bustle of downtown. And that's just what life is day in and day out. Uh, So in that regard, it's a normal city. These neighborhoods are normal Mm -hmm. neighborhoods with all the joys and the struggles and pains uh, that people go through. Uh, And that's one of the joys of having churches that are neighborhood-based, uh, which is that you're ministering to people with all the normal human struggles and some of the unique varieties of struggles that come with being in the nation's capital. Uh, but um, it, it's just a pleasure uh, to be able to walk with people, do real life, and to apply the gospel to real life with folks. Amen. So tell us about real life in your neighborhood, which neighborhood you're in, and tell us about real life in your neighborhood. Yeah, so we are, as you mentioned, a, a congregation called Grace Meridian Hill. Grace is sort of our surname, the, the name that uh, applies to all of our congregations in our network, the Grace DC Network. Meridian Hill is a designation, a historical title that we took from a slope, a hill that runs right up 16th Street, which is the prime meridian of the District of Columbia, meaning it was the center line based upon which all the other lines, all the other other numbered streets in D.C. were laid down. So it's the middle line that cuts right down the middle of the city, runs up from the White House, and cuts right through the different neighborhoods that we serve. So we're committed to applying a special focus of resource, energy, prayers, love, presence for neighborhoods, Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant, Adams, Morgan, and Petworth. Uh, so both in Ward 1 and in Ward 4, these are historically African-American neighborhoods that have changed rapidly. Mm-hmm. One of the unique things about this part of the city, it's actually been known uh, from the 90s on for its diversity, has always celebrated a real rich mix of people, one of the rare places in the District of Columbia where there hasn't been any majority culture. Hmm. Historically, for example, Ward 1 was roughly a third black, a third white, and a third Latino, Mm -hmm. the center of the Hispanic community here in D.C. That's been changing rapidly. And I think the dynamic that we have here now, for instance, in the neighborhood I live in, Columbia Heights, is that you have this collision going on right now between being the neighborhood where you have actually historically the highest number of subsidized housing units per capita in the entire city, colliding with also one of the hottest soaring real estate markets at the same time. Mm. And so you have enormous wealth and generational poverty literally side by side Mm -hmm. and block to block. And so the challenge is, what does it look like for us to minister to not just this neighborhood, but to the whole neighborhood, the entirety of the neighborhood, all the families with all its respective challenges and real differences at the same time? 
Amen. So much, so much in that, brother. How are you then shepherding your people? What kinds of things are you teaching them, putting before them to sort of create that kind of presence that you're talking about, where you're engaging the diversity in the neighborhood, both class diversity from the wealthy to the poor neighbors, um, but also the ethnic and cultural diversity um, that's there. How are you shaping disciples that that sort of lean into those kinds of issues? Yeah. I mean, one way we do it is by making one of our core values, one of our strategic missional commitments, front and center, the vision of becoming, building a cross-cultural community. Mm. Um, so that's a core part of our identity. Um, by cross-cultural, we mean not just having a diverse community as if it's all about just number count or face right. color count and right. all that kind of thing, right. um, but rather it's about the dynamic of our relationships. Are we actually incarnating, mm. moving into one another's enfleshed experiences? Right, mm. uh, like Jesus entering into our skin, mm. seeing the world through one another's eyes, mm. walking in each other's sandals, as it were, and asking the question, "What's it like to be you?" Right, because it's possible, of course, to have a church that is multi-ethnic or multi-racial and not cross-cultural. That's right, because you're not in each other's lives, you're not in each other's phones, mm. you're not in each other's kitchens. Mm. Right. Mm. So that's the goal, both in terms of reconciliation as well as solidarity and justice. Mm. And so that's something we talk about a lot as a church, okay. um, something that we, again, put front and center in terms of our mission, in terms of our identity. We try to do what we can to not only equip people for those engagements in community life as well as in the neighborhood, so training and equipping, but also modeling that publicly in worship as far as just the way that we try to embrace different cultural expressions of music and uh, worship and the way that we preach in terms of the things that we apply things to, the things that we pray for in our pastoral prayers as far as uh, concerns that are on the hearts of our African-American brothers and sisters and our Latino brothers and sisters, and not just preaching about and praying about majority culture concerns. Amen. Amen. Worship, preaching, prayer— and by the way, I had, I had the opportunity to attend and worship with you guys. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's summer. right. Yeah. The worship and the preaching was banging, brother. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, was, yeah. I was mad encouraged. Yeah. But um, worship, preaching, prayer, are there other ways you structure conversation, both inside the, the church, but also with the church and the community around those kinds of things? Justice, solidarity, need, mercy, all those, all those things. Are there other ways you're structuring those yeah, we, we, we have a, a cross-cultural team that has just been a, a, a wonderful crew of members of our church that have this on their heart. It's a diverse collection of people, um, Black, Asian American, white. The team itself um, has been insistent that it be led primarily by the folks of color on mm -hmm. that team. And they have done a great job of organizing and hosting conversations, ta table talks um, around a meal, mm -hmm. um, whether if it's to help instruct or uh, instruct people about different cultural concerns or perspectives, whether mm -hmm. if that's Black or if that's Asian or otherwise, it's sometimes using movies to do that, sometimes, and always around food, mm -hmm. it, not, not just to grease the wheels, but because we believe that the Holy Spirit does something unique mm -hmm. when we break bread. 
You sound uh, Baptist. There's right? something, you know, you, you gotta do Baptist. it. You gotta eat. Yeah. You gotta eat. <laughs> right? There's a spiritual thing Man. that happens. It's a covenantal thing. And it's 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 straight out of the Bible, right? Mm. So um that's a, a big thing that they were committed to doing table talk wise. They also were really great about, and this was a, a shift that was starting to happen right before the pandemic, and that is to apply more energy to creating affinity spaces. Mm. Because we found that it's important if you're going to build a cross-cultural community to give adequate support to people within their own sub-communities, people that are like-minded, that come from general, of course, there's diversity even within the Black community or the Asian American community mm -hmm. and such, but at least to provide space where I can go to talk with people, hang with people, or not to have to talk to people because they get it. They know my story. They're, they know where I'm coming from without me having to explain it to them. As I've heard it said in other places and in other ways, we believe to be a big house with lots of different kinds of people mm. in order to make it there, uh, everyone's got to have their own room too. Like for us to come out to the living room and be the crazy mess of the people of God together, yeah. you got to sometimes be able to retreat to your corner or to your room and be with your people and I think even research has shown that to be true and important and vital. So all that to say, we have begun to try to angle in that direction of creating those affinity spaces. So for example, when the Atlanta shootings took place, uh, we made sure to create room for Asian American sisters and brothers to be able to process. Um, at that time, given the pandemic, it was over Zoom and to be able to just air things out pray for each other, talk about what's on their heart, that sort of thing. In other ways, we've had African-American gatherings, people hanging with Pastor Yancey um, and his people, uh, <laughs> just to give some room for people to just, again, be themselves, to find their own bedroom in this big house together. As a guy who grew up the youngest of eight kids, mm. Uh, and the earliest place I remember my family living in was a two-bedroom yeah. apartment. Yeah. We had two bunk beds, two stacks of bunk beds yeah. with eight kids. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, having your own room sounds real appealing. <laughs> to, <laughs> your boy, right. to your boy, that sounds That's like right. a good life. That's Look, right. man, so, so you've got African-American, uh, Asian-American, Hispanic, I assume also some white brothers and sisters, yeah. European-American brothers and sisters, trying to maintain this sense of family, the family of God. But you're also creating spaces for affinity, affinity groups. How easy is it to manage that work? I, so I got two questions. How easy is it or difficult is it to manage that work? What lessons come out of that for you? But you also made reference to, and I think this is vitally important, kind of doing this work in your neighborhood without centering the concerns of the majority sort of white population there, right? Right. So talk with me about those things, because I, I feel like even in predominantly ethnic spaces, yeah. often 
is sort of programmed to respond to that's right sort of you know major majority culture white sort of issues and that gets centered in a way that marginalizes ethnic people even in their own spaces yeah so talk a little bit about if you can make sense of all that how easy it is or difficult it is to manage that and the importance of centering the right group of people and issues at the right time. Yeah, the, both both sides of that question is so important. Managing it, man, if if that's even the right word, because it's sort of, it, it feels like it's just about a dance, mm, mm, <laughs> Const, right. constantly in motion, where you know one side of the community might have unique needs that need to be tended to, and and then that shifts over to another side and. Um, I'll just say it, it's hard. Mm. It's really hard. Um, you know, it's a great joy to build cross-cultural community. It mm-hmm. really is. Mm-hmm. It's it's a taste of heaven. And when it goes well, it's one of the most encouraging things that I as a minister could ever experience. Amen. Just to see the people of God. And and by that, I don't even mean because when it's easy or it's just flowing. I mean, even when it's hard, when there are tears, Mm -hmm. because you know that's part of the process. That's Mm -hmm. part of the healing. That's part of uh, the redemption Mm -hmm. of the broken people of God. Uh, And it's a joy, but it's really hard. Mm -hmm. And and I would say it's been even harder given the polarizations of our day, right? Where there's a creeping cynicism and a creeping frustration and doubt that this is really possible. And I would say understandably so. I mean, things are so bad out there. The clock has been turned back in many ways as far as the movement of reconciliation is concerned Mm -hmm. that not everyone is so sure they're signed up for this. Is it worth it? Is it possible to do this in a church space Is it better? I was talking, for example, had a a book reading meeting, a series of meetings around reparations. And one of our African-American sisters was just sort of musing out loud, thinking, I just, I'm not sure this is possible. You know, sometimes I wonder, is it better for us just to stay with more culturally homogenous churches and then to build reconciliation amongst churches? Mm. But in other Mm. words, for the rooms in the big house, to be our congregations and the living room to be the wider community mm-hmm. rather than trying to do it within a church community. Cause she's like, I mean, it was almost profound what she was saying. She said, I just wanna, I just wanna actually, I wanna just talk about Jesus mm-hmm. instead of all this other stuff. And so sometimes it's easier to be in a space where that other stuff is already shared and assumed so that we can get to the business of talking about Jesus, right? And I know there, 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 you know, there, there, there are tensions and there are struggles and, and I get there's more that we could talk about that uh, if, if you want. Um, but she was just giving voice to that visceral struggle of like, is this gonna work? Because mm. I wanna know if it's worth putting in the energy, the time, the disappointment, the pain to even try. No, I think based on scripture, we can say it's going to work. In the long arc sense of -hmm. it going to work, right? Jesus has promised that we see the vision of John in regards to that, every tribe, tongue, and language of people. But in the short run, here and now, it's hard. So so I, I would say, you know, confronting that frustration, that doubt in mixed community, 
is really hard to lead through. Mm. In regards to the other side of that, I, I think it's related. And that is part of what I think that sister was giving voice to was, is it possible to do this? One aspect, I think, of what she was saying was, is it possible to do this? Is it possible to talk about reparations? Is it possible to talk about reconciliation? Is it possible to build this community without centering the needs of white folks in the community, the majority culture, mm-hmm. right? Because she said, look, when we all come to a time like this, she was referring to our reparations conversation. She said, look, us black folks, we come in for healing and y'all are coming for learning. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and those are completely different goals and sometimes conflicting goals. Right. And it's why in those spaces people get hurt or mad all That's the time. Right. It's because you're coming for different reasons and you don't even know that, That's right. which is the problem. That's actually the kind of framing that we need to just help people to see a little bit more. So again, <laughs> what I'm going to say in answer to that second half of your question is I, I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to learn how to do that and struggle because I, I think, like you said, so many of us, um, both by being just a member of American society and by ministerial training, based upon different institutions that we've been a part of and different traditions that we have drunk from and swam in, we instinctively will tend to center the concerns of our white brothers and sisters, their sensibilities or sensitivities. That's not always wrong because we're called to love all our people, all the people that God by his providence bring into our pews and into our communities. We need to love everyone. And I'm committed to that. I absolutely am. But how do you do it in a way where that's not always your first concern or their needs aren't your only consideration? So I'm happy to talk it out with you, but just to start off by saying, um, I confess that's a struggle and that's a process that I myself uh, am unpacking in many ways, unlearning and then relearning as well. Man, you know, it's, it's a feature, not a bug, too. I mean, you talk about if, if that's where your ministerial training and discipleship right. has, has occurred, is in predominantly white institutions or predominantly white contexts or even white adjacent contexts, right? right? That is sort of the feature, the centering of those sensibilities and, and ideas. And just to sort of um, double click on what you're saying there about the difficulty of it, I don't even think I had seen it in my own life in ministry mm. until a couple in my church. Uh, who was struggling with the preaching and struggling with different things, struggling with the fit of our church in this context, which is our neighborhood is, last time I looked, about 92% African-American, mm-hmm. was saying, hey, you know, there's something kind of off about the framing of the preaching. And I did a justice series, and mm. uh, probably six sermons into the series, we go out to breakfast, and his first question was, why did you set the sermon series up that way? And I had done a kind of pipe arrest thing. I was kind of yeah. like, here are five dangers and five delights, yeah. right? Yeah. Of pursuing justice and talk about justice. Yeah, yeah. So at first I thought he was talking about the pipe arrest thing. I was yeah, like, well, yeah. you know, it's just framing. He's like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. He's like, it seemed to be couched to mostly alleviate the concerns of white evangelicals. Mm. And my initial reaction was, I'm trying to get my arms around the whole church. Yeah. And he was like, mm, no, 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 no. To his credit, he kept pushing. He was like, no, no, no. What, what I'm saying is black folk, brown folk are coming in there for healing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
And that sermon, he didn't use the words that you use. I like that categories you use. But that sermon series seemed to me to be couched for the learning of folks who aren't hurting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I had to sit with that. It it took me a while sitting with that, processing that, rolling that over and over. Uh, I was like, man, he right. Right. (laughs) Right. He right. I didn't even know I was doing that. Yeah, we don't even know it. I didn't even know I was doing it, but he was spot on. Right. right? He was seeing things well before I was seeing them. And so I'm always interested in how people are negotiating, how they're working out those kinds of issues. It's a kind of deconstruction. It's a kind of... It is. Oh, you use the, the, D, the D word. The D word. word right. You're in trouble it's, now. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No, that's right. And even I cracked this joke, even as maybe one illustration of the very mm-hmm. thing we're talking about as far as what, what rises to the level of sort of like red zone concern, red level concern mm-hmm. for some folks and not for others. Listen, I, I everything you're saying, it's it's right on. And it's not even just that the needs and the objectives in ministering to one side of the community is learning. It's not even just instruction. It's actually apologetics. I think that's what we find ourselves doing where you're you're defending a certain uh, principle or conviction or truth uh, that is patently biblical, but is something that has been treated with some degree of suspicion, for example, the issue of justice and stuff. And so you sit there Let's just take that as an example. Having to make the case that justice is a biblical concern. Now, look, the minute you frame your teaching that way, you're only talking to certain people. That's right. Because right? Right. there's That's a whole right. universe of human being out there that needs no convincing. That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> right? right. But that's exact, and and I would say what's subtle about it, in my observation, and I know we're, teaching is only one aspect of all, you know, what we're talking about uh, here, but... Um, I think some of it too comes out of some of the training that we've received or the modeling that we also have seen before us in our training. And that is this assumption that our teaching always needs to have some manifest balance. It's partly why, you know, in any given topic you stumble upon in the middle of your exposition, now you have to do 15 minutes or 50 minutes, whatever your timeline is here, of systematic theology. Mm-hmm. So here's a given topic on prayer. Jesus says, uh, ask of me anything, anything. And then we immediately be like, but no. let me tell you what anything means so that you don't walk away thinking, thinking something something imbalanced, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Um, or here's what justice means. Mm-hmm. And let me explain what justice is and let me explain what justice isn't. Mm-hmm. Let me show you the scope of what we're talking about. Let me show you this side. Let me show you that side. Let me. And I sometimes wonder, yeah, so yes, we need to preach the whole counsel of God. Mm-hmm. So in some regard, we do need to give people the whole scope of the matter. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we always need to do it every time in every instance, because sometimes Jesus said some things very imbalanced to his listeners and just kind of left, mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, and he didn't actually give them the whole redemptive historical scope of that given topic when he's confronting this one individual, because he knows sometimes what you need to hear is the imbalance that's of the right. call of the gospel, because that's your particular felt need or real need. That's the fallenness in your heart that needs to be confronted in an imbalanced fashion. So pastorally, I think there's a call to to do that as long as we're not being irresponsible but uh, but I also believe that sometimes this sort of, I don't know, this this thing we have about making sure all of our treatments are balanced 
is also subtly or sometimes not so subtly in order to establish a certain safety of tone Mm -hmm. and safety of a certain member. And by that, I don't don't just mean in a racial sense, but a certain member that doesn't want to feel too off kilter Mm -hmm. by that moment. So we're actually giving them a more peaceable experience of this word from the Lord. So it's actually not just the balance of the content of Scripture, but we're trying to also offer them a pastoral, existential balance where you don't feel too threatened by one thing or another. All that to say, I do think sometimes culturally, that is how people develop a habit of ministering to our white sisters and brothers with these topics that might come off as edgy to them when we center black and brown folks or folks of color in our pews. It's experienced as confrontational or as threatening. And our immediate impulse is to try to soften the edges and to create balance Mm. in the way that we present these things. This may be the most important conversation I've had or heard when it comes to pastoral leadership in diverse contexts, especially those contexts that feature contentious issues. Starting or strengthening churches in neglected and vulnerable black and brown neighborhoods requires the kind of integrity that recognizes who should be at the center and when. And it also requires the kind of humility that can admit the unseen, often unseen influence of our white brothers and sisters gazing on our ministries. Now, to make that kind of admission and to do this work of centering the right people well, we have to develop a non-self-conscious presence that rests in the rightness of seeing people as they are and serving them according to their needs. I mean, in other words, we just got to be comfortable in our own skin, in our own cultures, and got to be comfortable recognizing other people in their skin and in their culture and being okay with that. But that takes skill. And that takes a lifetime of reflective practice. It takes the Lord giving us a lot of grace. And I'm just praying as I finish this conversation with Duke that the Lord would raise up an army of such leaders because they're needed, especially in vulnerable and neglected black and brown neighborhoods on the margins, trying to sort of come to the middle of God's kingdom work. May it be so. 